Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 417. And in today's episode, we have a bit of an unscripted chat between myself and one of you guys, a listener of the show. Eli had wrote in at some point uh, several months ago and asked really many questions about the logistics of traveling for out-of-state hunts. Some of the topics included things like, is it better to fly or drive? How do you get meat back? Are there certain things you needed to know about traveling with weapons? And really just a lot of questions around those topics. And I thought it would be great to do an episode on it and really just chat with Eli. Kind of unscripted, answer those questions, but really see where else that conversation takes us. And so it was just one of those things where the email he sent me raised some great questions. But instead of just covering it, I wanted to have the interaction with him. So imagine that this podcast is just me and a listener. Uh, just chatting through things kind of informally, but covering different topics related to traveling out of state for hunts. We clearly didn't answer every single question. I'm not the expert on every single aspect of this topic, but I've traveled out of state for many, many hunts at this point, flying, driving, lower 48 up in Alaska. And so I just really shared Eli off the cuff, some of what I learned regarding the questions that he had. So you're basically peering in on a conversation that Eli and I had around these topics. Before we dive into that, I wanted to remind you guys, this is really the last episode that is getting released here in August, 2023, before we shut down the giveaway for this month. And that giveaway is an elk call package from our friends at the Born and Raised Call Company. So if you haven't yet, if you're hearing this episode on August 14th or any time before then, that will be your last day to enter is August 14th of 2023. Just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. You can see more about that prize package. You can understand the exact elk calls that you'll be getting in that package. And then of course you can get entered there, which is really easy to do. Hit pause and do that right now. Come on back. Let's dive into this conversation between myself and Eli. Well, Eli, welcome to the Hunt Back Hunter podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, excited to chat. Um, so you're over on the East Coast now, right? Haven't made the move. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, um, yeah, we moved back in July of 2022. Um, so I'm living in a little town called, uh, Cary, North Carolina. That's outside of the, the research triangle. And, um, so we're just, oh, like 10 miles South of Durham for okay. anybody that would know where that's at. Yeah. <laughs> and you had come from like the Idaho kind of Montana border area? Yeah. So I, well, I grew up in Montana, um, lived there for, um, quite a while. went to college for my first degree at Montana state. And then, um, when my wife and I graduated, she got a pretty good opportunity at St. Luke's in Boise. And so we moved to Boise in, February of 2017. Um, and then, yeah, I lived there for five years. And, uh, last year we, um, 
just had gone through some stuff and um, figured that a little change of pace would be good for our family. And so um, we had looked at quite a few different places and my wife just had this draw to North Carolina. She's always wanted to live here and had never been, which was just crazy that she, it always just popped up on her radar. And so uh, we did a little like week and a half visit in April and then um, just loved it down here and uh, did the move in July. Nice. What um, doesn't necessarily have to be like hunting related, but just from a recreational, like outdoor type perspective, I mean, um, in the East, North Carolina is a state that has some, some cool country, cool opportunities. Uh, but what has it been like for you guys? Has it been a hard transition or, um, sounds like you have enjoyed it. Yeah, we, um, what's really been kind of the game changer that we've seen is how family oriented the, just the whole, like every city town that you're in, at least around the triangle, um, that we find, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, we, we moved in and I think a month later across the street from the, um, townhome living complex that we live at, they're building, uh, a big, um, park. They took, a they took, a I think it was just, a like a, a wooded area that had a running trail going through it. And they, this city was like, Hey, we, this this area is getting heavily populated. We've got quite a few schools popping up. Let's put a park there. And so um, they're going to be done with that this summer, which is awesome. And um, we just seem to have a lot of opportunities specific for kids, which was really huge for us. Cause we um, she's actually, uh, we have a daughter who's 23 months old today. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, so that was a big aspect of, of um why we moved out here was not that um Idaho is a a bad place to raise kids but um we just saw that there was a lot of opportunity for little ones to be involved and grow um Mm -hmm. unfortunately it was a pretty rough transition um moving over and had nothing really to do with the move. Well, it kind of had to do with move. Um, so our, our plan was in moving was that, um, I was going to tow a U-Haul in my, uh, Tundra cross country. And my wife and daughter would stay with a friend in Idaho for a couple of days, wait for me to get across. Cause it takes three days of travel if unless you're driving all day and night which is a little scary but um day one of the move uh i was an hour outside of riggins wyoming and uh had a uh had a tire break off um broke all five lug nuts off and uh snapped off so yeah 730 in the evening day one of the day one of the move I was on the side of the road with a buddy waiting for a tow truck to come get us 
and then had to figure out how, you know, uh, had to have it towed to a, a place that could try to fix it. It was tiny town, Wyoming. So I, the, the guy that towed us was like, Hey, it's, it's Wyoming on a Saturday. Like they've got <laughs> literally have bigger, bigger fish to go and catch and fry. So, yeah. and, uh, deal with that had to, we had to do a little leapfrog driving to go and find a, a moving truck so that we could pack everything up from the U-Haul and the Tundra and get it in and then keep going and, oh, and get man. on the way. So that was a hassle. And then, um, then it was trying to get, you know, you're, you're out of, yeah, I'm a country away literally and trying to keep in contact with uh, my insurance company with getting the truck fixed. And then, then it was a whole fiasco of how we were going to get it back over and had started a new, uh, it was a newer job. Um, I, uh, I'm in, my wife and I are both the nurses and uh, I had worked intensive care in Idaho for five years. Um, and then uh, taken a position at uh, Duke university. And so it was the same job, but it's a little bit different because um, Duke does, does everything except for having a burn unit. Um, and so it was a steep learning curve for the new job and getting my feet under me. I, you're the new guy on the block, so you got to work some night shift. So it was trying to get into a new spot, you know, switch all the IDs, get everything registered. Um, yeah. You got to get like nursing licenses switched over, make sure you know what you're doing on the job, plus working night shift and trying to be on a schedule to be a dad and not be a zombie during the day. And <laughs> it was, so it was, it was a little rough in the beginning. A lot of it was just survival mode and getting stuff over, but um, yeah, got the truck fixed and shift back over here and um, got off night shift. So we're, uh, we're really looking forward to this summer being able to um, uh, start really branching out into the, um, the like recreational aspects of what North Carolina has to offer. But I know they have, they have some hiking stuff. Um, and, uh, they have, there's a crazy amount of water here. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know why I would never have thought that there wasn't because it's East coast where, two hours from, from the ocean. And, uh, you know, it really, it reminds me of, of Oregon. Um, but, uh, they just don't get the, um, inversion where it's just gloomy for days and days. The, the sun will come out, but like right now it's yesterday, it was 80, 87 degrees, sunshiny, beautiful today. It's, pouring down rain yeah and i think we rain for the weekend and then it'll be hot again on monday so yeah i mean you're you're between that like yeah you can go to the coast you can go up into the smokies and north carolina definitely has some cool stuff to offer yeah nice man 
So you had reached out, um, you know, just on, hey, I'm from the West. I moved to the East Coast and uh, sounds like you want to continue to get out West and hunt when you can. And just had questions um, about the logistics of that from our experience. And uh, I just kind of, you know, when I was looking at talking about my experience with you and kind of helping you with your questions, I thought, man, it'd just be cool to hop on a call and chat and hit record. Um, And so this isn't, you know, very scripted of like the A to Z on what to consider. Um, But I just kind of wanted to start the conversation and, and chat with you and see what would be helpful for you and for the listeners. But I guess a good starting point, you know, one thing that's unique, I think a lot of guys we hear from could be from the Midwest or out East and want to go hunt out West, uh, which would be your situation. But I, I think what one thing that comes to mind right off the bat that could be cool for you personally is you already have some connections in Idaho on Montana and leveraging that can help you a bit just on the practicalities of things. So, um, you know, whether that's friends, family, just knowing people call it on the ground in a state or an area that you may be hunting is um, a big benefit. And we can talk about why later, but do you, to start with, do you have like a specific hunt planned for this fall or anything, or are you just kind of thinking ahead of getting back out there? Um, it would definitely be for uh, ahead of time. Um, yeah. When we, when my wife and I were talking logistics of, of doing the move and, um, you know, we did, we, we weren't moving to North Carolina thinking, okay, we'll, we'll do this for two, three years and then we'll, we'll move somewhere else. It was kind of a, can we make this the, the last move and, um, set roots in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, um, big reservation of mine was, uh, how do I get back to do hunting and what does that look like? And, um, you know, talking with my wife and logistics and finances and stuff, um, I knew that it was going to be, you know, uh, in the financial spot that we're in right now, it was, uh, maybe every three year kind of plan. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, and you're completely correct with, um, having some benefits of, um, you know, I, my family still lives in Montana. Um, my, my dad is, uh, you know, who I grew up hunting with and, um, still try to take opportunities to hunt with. Uh, and so there's, um, in terms of scouting and places to go and things like that, I have my, you know, almost kind of a little drone out there of, Hey, why don't you go check out this spot this weekend and (laughs) see what it looks like. Um, as well as, uh, I know that there's, there's a, um, uh, licensure program that Montana offers for, um, it's called the, uh, come home to hunt or come back to hunt program. And, um, essentially you have to apply for it. You get put into a draw but, um, you, the whole goal of it was, uh, was for people like me who have, um, family that live in Montana and they want to come back and, and hunt with that family member, um, to make it a little more, uh, cost affordable. And I don't remember the numbers. Um, 
I did it back in 20, 2018 and 2020. So I'm, I'm sure that the price has probably gone up, but yeah, essentially for, uh, um, you apply for your deer elk combo. Um, and then you also apply for the come home to hunt. And essentially if you get selected for the come home to hunt, they take like 50% off of your tags. So instead of, if I remember right, it was almost a, almost a thousand dollars for a deer elk combo. Um, if you're just straight out, out of state resident, and then it's like $500 plus or minus if you're on that come home to hunt. And, um, you just have to say I'm hunting with my mom, dad, my brother. Um, I think you can even, um, try to like, uh, squeeze in like, you know, more distant relatives where you're like, you know, yeah, this is my second cousin, but like we grew up together and, you know, he's more of a brother kind of thing. And so, um, I think they're more liberal and, um, what their definition of that, uh, uh, that close family relative is, but, um, that was definitely a nice option, uh, to save a couple bucks. And then, yeah, living in Idaho, um, again, more people of, uh, you know, Hey, I want to try to come back. Yeah. Have you looked at a spot or where, where do you want to go and yep. tag along? Yeah. And it, it, it helps on the, like just the practical stuff and some of what we'll get into, but when you look at say travel, um, I mean, down to, this is like <laughs> something that comes to mind is such a small example, but just shows how helpful it can be. Like, let's say you do decide to fly, for example, for a hunt and you're going back to, um, let's even say Idaho. So it's not like going home to family, but you have friends in Idaho or a buddy in Idaho or what have you. And you decide to fly is, I mean, simple stuff. Like you can't fly with jet boil fuel. So you could like have your buddy like, Hey, I'm coming out for this hunt. And maybe you are, aren't hunting together, but, um, do you mind if, you know, you grab me these two or three things and have them for me? And clearly you could land in Idaho and go to the sportsman's warehouse and buy those things as well. But, um, you know, it, just the simple of like, Hey, could you pick me up at the airport or could you grab some fuel for me? Or I'm going to ship some gear items to you ahead of time so that I don't have to fly with them and have more checked baggage, for example. Um, I've done that when hunting out of state of, you know, box up a bunch of my food, throw it in a flat rate postal service box a few days ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, send it out there and it's less stuff that I have to travel with, which is nice. So just having someone in call it the out of state or the location that you're going to, and just using that for like simple logistics can help you a ton versus if you're truly going to a brand new spot all on your own. Um, and then in bigger ways, obviously, maybe you can share the hunt with them. Like maybe you not only get to go back to Idaho and hunt, but you get to go back to Idaho and hunt and do it with a buddy and share that experience with them. It, yeah, it's going to help you practically, right? Like maybe you're going to be able to fly and then instead of having to rent a car to get 
you know, to the trailhead or up into the mountains or what have you, like, since you're hunting with your buddy, you can, he can pick you up at the airport and you guys can go share a hunt together, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, you know, some, you did have some of the questions about like flying and driving and we can get into some of the nitty gritty, but it's, um, you know, this question is something we get and we actually talked about, um, on a recent Monday minute podcast, there was a guy who was wanting to go from Florida to Idaho. Um, and in particular it was a solo hunt, which again is another point to consider when you're looking at logistics is, are you doing this solo or are you maybe traveling with someone? Cause that can change the answers. But, um, yeah, I mean, driving, as you said, like, from North Carolina back to whether it's Montana or Idaho or another Western state is it's a ton of time, man. Like it's an investment, um, in time that when you pair that on the front end and the back end of your hunt really eats away at how many days left you have to hunt. Cause obviously, as you said, like not only do you have work, but you have a, a young family and a growing family and kids that, you know, if you can get there and, four hours instead of two days that gives you more time to hunt while taking less time to be away from the family so there's definitely those benefits and then you know it can seem like a headache to fly for a hunt to have to pack gear and to maybe travel with like a rifle or a bow whatever your weapon of choice is um and we can chat about that if you have questions it's really not bad and then the drive in addition to the time like your story from driving east kind of proved like there can be issues on the drive right that delay that time even worse or maybe you run into bad weather systems or have a mechanical issue so it's just not you know same thing that happened with flights right you have a flight canceled theoretically you could lose luggage like there's all kinds of stuff that can go wrong but there's things that can go wrong either way whether you're flying or driving yeah. Um, and I completely agree with everything you said. I mean, um, you know, going through that, uh, you know, you're, you're driving back in, in my, I'll, you know, my truck, if I'm driving back and I'm ready to go and I've chalked out two weeks of PTO and time away from the family, which is, a ton of time, but I, you know, it's, uh, you know, 36 hours to drive across, um, to drive across and you get, you get stuck somewhere in St. Louis and you're, I mean, you're from experience. It took, it took two months to get my truck back up and running and have parts back in on it. And, um, you know, so now you're, you're flying home, uh, with all your stuff to, <laughs> to leave your car in a random place because it, it broke down and, um, or just, yeah, just adding that extra time to, uh, to a hunt to make sure that you can get there, get there and back safely and that you're not, you know, trying to overexert yourself on the end of a hunt where you're driving, you know, 20 hours solo. Cause you, you need to be back the next day for 
work or a meeting or whatever. Um, yeah. There are, it is a lot of stuff that's, that's gone through my mind. Um, I, uh, I had previously when, when I moved from Montana to Idaho, uh, I had done the come home to hunt and I hunted in Montana that year. And <clears throat> that was kind of a, it was a hybrid way of doing it because I did fly, um, back to Montana from Boise, but I was flying back to my dad. And so some of those things that you've already touched on of, you know, we took his truck. Um, he had, uh, we weren't doing any kind of like backpack hunting or anything like that, but, um, essentially I had to bring my bow clothes and, um, I think my like binoculars and rangefinder. And then my dad had everything else, you know, yeah. here's an extra backpack, here's an extra or fanny pack. And I've got all the water and I've got all the food and all those other things that you need. But I, it was very convenient for me of just check my bow. I have a carry on and hop on a flight and go. And so when I had asked you guys, it was, um, it's kind of a double-edged sword of being out here is that I do have opportunities to go back to Montana and Idaho, but it really kind of opens it up of, you know, when I'm doing a hunt plan, um, I have, uh, I, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of dollar difference between an out of state Colorado license or an out of state Wyoming license. Um, and so it, really kind of opens it up because when you're an in-state resident and you're kind of trying to penny pinch, it's hard to be like, Oh, let's, let's pay for that out of state Colorado hunt. Cause that would be super cool. But you know, I'm spending an extra two, $300 on an elk tag compared to in driving and all that logistic stuff. Yeah. When you're, I can be in-state and pay a hundred dollars for my elk tag and I can do all the scouting and do all the trips and um, still not even get close to how much money I'd spend going to Colorado. But mm -hmm. now I'm, I'm in that, that, that price range, no matter what. And <laughs> yeah. So, it's just expensive no matter where you go. Yeah. So, so then it's kind of, okay, well, what if I wanted to, you know, um, even if I just have, if I have someone, uh, meet me in Colorado. It was, how do I get, how do I get all my gear? If I want to do a backpacking trip, um, to Colorado, how's the best way to get all of my stuff over there? All the, you know, and you have to pack light and you can't bring too much extra cause you're going to pay for it on the flight over. But, um, yeah. uh, and that was kind of why, uh, I originally had reached out was cause, um, I know that the EXO team had gone to Alaska for the, um, for multiple hunts, but I remember watching the, the video of, um, you guys going for caribou, mm -hmm. um, or at least Steve going for caribou. And, um, that just kind of piqued me of, of, well, that's a pretty good drive for Steve. If he's driving from, Idaho up to Alaska. 
<laughs> and plus a border patrol crossing. So, well, did he drive or did he fly? And then it was like, okay, so maybe these guys would have some insight of, um, of how to get, if you're, if you're, Oh, I need, I need to bring my full sleep system. Um, bring my weapon, clothes, all that stuff. How, what's the, what was the XO way of, of doing it? And where can I take some tips and tricks from that and meld it with other things and figure out the best way to, to get it done. Cool. Yeah. Let's dive into that. So, um, you know, just to back up quick again on flying and driving, we can come back to some of these things too. Um, but you know, for your situation, and I think what we've talked about, even if it's, you know, you don't have family, but you maybe know a buddy, if you're going somewhere where you have call it some level of local support, maybe this is family, friend, maybe it's a, you're going on a guided hunt to Alaska. Um, if you have some local support at the destination, that alone often is going to create um, a scenario where it's probably more efficient to fly for all the things we've talked about, right? Like you have someone there who can meet you, maybe help provide things, maybe help provide additional transportation, et cetera. Um, even if you're going so um, solo to a place with you don't have anyone on the ground, but particularly you're going solo and it's a long drive, I think there's a case that could be made that flying is better because it's going to save you time. Um, you know, it's probably, I think it's safe to say it's safer probably to fly than do a crazy long drive solo, for example. Um, but on the flip side of that, if you are going out of state and even if you have a long drive, if you know you're going with, or maybe even meeting up with someone part way and like sharing that drive, I think that situation begins to make a better case for driving because you can share those hours and things like that. So um, there's more that could be said there. Maybe we'll circle back to that, but let's get to your question on flying. So whether it's, um, yeah, man, I've flown inside the U.S. a lot for hunts. I've flown to Alaska numerous times for hunts. Really big picture. What I try and do um, is essentially have two checked items plus my carry-on. And that is I'm getting everything I need in those items for the hunts, whether that's, you know, I've done for elk and deer and caribou and mountain goat and backpacking hunts and base camp hunts and all kinds of stuff. Two checked items and a carry-on. So what that typically looks like for me, one of my checked items is going to be Uh, my weapon. Sometimes it's been a bow, sometimes it's been a rifle, but one of the checked items is going to be a weapon case. And then for that weapon case, I'm going to, obviously the primary purpose of that is the weapon itself. I'm also going to use that um, to include other items that you definitely can't carry on, right? So like a perfect example would be trekking poles. Um, they're going to be better off in your weapons case. You don't want to carry them on. You're probably not going to want to put them in like a duffel bag, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but often my weapons case will have other things like trekking poles, potentially optics, potentially my range finder, things like that. 
um, actually do have an article and video that we put out, I think last summer, I'll leave a link in the show description for that about how to fly with a weapon. And I, I literally showed the exact way um, that scenario was for a rifle hunt, but I showed the exact way of, Hey, here's my rifle case. Here's how I put my rifle in it. Here's all the other things I put in it. Um, some of what I add to the weapons case is practical, um, again, to protect regulated items. Some of it is just very at a base level. It's like, if I'm paying to check an item and it has a 50 pound weight limit, I want to put as much in there as possible to get me to using all of that 50 pounds. Right. So most often Mm -hmm. my weapons case literally weighs like 48 or 49 pounds. I put as much as I can in there to make the most use of this item that I'm paying to check. So the other checked item would be um, a giant duffel bag. There's, you know, a a bunch of hunting companies make a lot of these now, like First Light makes them, Sitka makes them, uh, Kuyu makes them, Canis makes them, et cetera. Um, I get something big enough. My kind of standard rule is I get something big enough that I could put my fully loaded pack inside the duffel bag if I wanted to. So I will look at measurements and like take my XO and go, okay, it's, you know, this long, um, this wide, this deep assembled, right. Or, or somewhat filled. Mm -hmm. I want to have the option to put that in my duffel bag. Sometimes I don't do that. And I'll talk about that, but I want to have that option to put my hunting pack, whatever that is inside this duffel bag with again, some other items accordingly. So, um, that duffel bag for me, I guess to to talk about the pack first, sometimes I will bring my hunting pack as my carry on. Um, I'll speak from the perspective of an XO pack, but this would relate to many other packs. It's not going to meet the technical size restrictions of a carry on item for a flight. Um, but I've flown with our packs or again, a similar framed hunting pack a ton um, and never have had an issue. I do take precautions to, you know, kind of keep it as streamlined as possible and not overly big or bulky looking if I'm using it as a carry-on. But I have used an exo pack a ton as a carry-on. So again, sometimes my pack is going in this duffel bag, which is a checked item. Sometimes I'm using it as a carry-on. Typically, um, let's say I have my pack and my duffel bag. It's going to be my pack. It's often going to be my shelter. It is often going to be um, my sleeping bag, my sleeping pad, uh, potentially my hunting boots, extra clothing, um, sometimes food. Sometimes I have food in my weapons case as well. Um, But basically, it's a lot of those items for the hunt. And then... You know, my carry-on, there's all kinds of different ways to split this. My carry-on, a lot of times, will be things I need with me. So, like, extra clean street clothes, maybe a change of hunting clothes. Um, Sometimes I am or am not wearing my hunting boots on the flight. Like, they're not the most comfortable thing, but depending on the hunt, sometimes I'll wear them. Or if I'm short on space or weight and my checked items, I'll wear them if I have to. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
one thing to consider just like super big picture. And again, this is where you get variables onto essentially where am I going? What am I hunting? What are the logistics? But one thing to keep in mind as you're packing and you're thinking about what goes in my checked items, what goes in my carry on, what is on my person, at least consider the scenario of what if one of my checked items doesn't show up or is late? Um, what does that do to me at the destination and the rest of my hunt, right? Mm-hmm. So perfect scenario, obviously the first one that comes to mind is your weapon. Um, it's hard to hunt without a weapon, right? So yeah. <laughs> um, I will say that I, I'm going to leave international travel out of this and just talk about traveling within the U.S., including Alaska. So when I say within the U.S., I don't just mean the lower 48. But let's say you're not doing international travel. That has That's a totally different conversation for a different day. The airlines, you essentially declare a firearm when you go to the airline, and we can talk about that process. But you're declaring a firearm, and that item is known to be a firearm as it travels, call it throughout the system. The airline wants nothing to do with losing a firearm, period. Mm -hmm. Like it's basically going to be treated a bit differently. And so I actually have not too much concern about an airline actually losing my weapons case. Now it can get delayed and I've had that happen to me where I had a tight connection all of my checked baggage, including my firearm, didn't make the connection on the flight. I arrived at my destination, got there only to figure out, oh, my stuff is still back in the last place where I made this connection and it's coming into the destination on the next flight. Um, and maybe that is in four hours, but maybe it's eight hours, maybe it's 12 hours later. I have dealt with that. But again, back in about big picture. Think through what are you putting where and what happens if something goes missing or is delayed. Again, this is a a lot simpler if, say, you're traveling back home or you're going to a location where you're meeting a friend. It's like if I'm going to meet a buddy on a hunt and let's say my firearm doesn't show up or is late or what have you, like there's a really good chance since I was going to hunt with a buddy, like he has a firearm, right? I just, I'm using his Mm -hmm. rifle at that point. Or, you know, if you're going back home or again, a listener is going to a place where he's meeting someone or has a buddy, like maybe it's not the firearm that goes missing, but maybe it's one of your other checked items and now it's gone, but it's like, okay, well, what was in there? Was it hunting clothes? Was it my shelter? Was it my sleep system? How does that change the hunt? Um, So those are just some things to think through. Uh, knock on wood, I haven't had any baggage get actually lost. I've just dealt with some minor delays, as I mentioned. But I'd still do think through like a scenario of, let's say it's not lower 48. Let's say I'm going to Alaska. I'm going all the way to Alaska. I don't necessarily have family or friend on the ground who can help me, who could give me extra gear, etc. I'm taking this giant trip to Alaska how am I packing so that if something happens, my hunt may be delayed or what have you, but isn't completely ruined? So again, 
I'm not going to answer that for everybody, but think through those things as you're packing. But again, back and way up, long story short, I think you can get away with two checked items and a carry on for pretty much any hunt, no matter what season, what species, the hunting style, et cetera. You could get away with less perhaps, right? So if you were going back home, for example, Eli, like, or going to hunt with a buddy in Idaho, I could foresee situations where you could get away with one checked item in your carry on. Right. So like, yeah, you could have your weapons case with extra stuff in there, whether it's your rangefinder, your optics, trekking poles, stove, whatever. And then your carry on, you could have some extra hunting clothes, extra street clothes, you know, things like that. So I would just shoot for no more than two checked items and a carry on. But I think there's situations where depending on the hunt style and what type of on the ground at your destination support you have, you could get away with less for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, the way that you spell that out makes complete sense. Yeah. So I would just, you know, when you factor in even pricing, right. Of like, how much is this flight going to cost and what does this airline charge for checked baggage? Like that's a way to look at it. Um, Skipping away, well, I guess before we skip ahead to traveling home, potentially with meat. Um, yeah, any other questions that come to mind just on logistics of traveling or flying of this versus that or how to do it type nitty gritty stuff? Uh, well, one question that does come to mind, and this is more of a, like I'm sure if I scoured through a TSA website, I could find the answer. But um, say... <clears throat> say we're doing a hunt in, um, Eastern Idaho, um, or in Wyoming, we're going into grizz country for a bow hunt. So I want to bring bear spray and, or a pistol and, um, in your experience, if you've ever done it, do you know if you can place a, So you have your weapons case. It's got your TSA approved locks. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think there's a a hindrance on if you place another weapon inside of that, um, inside that lock. It's just, you are just claiming that there is a, or multiple weapons inside this case. Mm -hmm. And then the airline just is, does it's careful processing with it yeah. correct i think that's how yeah, that no, that's a great question yes um yeah so i have flown with uh a rifle and a pistol in the same case um there's even been trips like when we've gone up to um i think the most recent one was last summer we went up to alaska for the death hike none of us were hunting but we were carrying bear protection a lot of guys that was a firearm so I think we had one case with like eight pistols in it or something ridiculous. Wow. (laughs) Um, And it, yeah. So that's not an issue. Um, You know, you follow the protocol, right? And I'm not going to go through every detail. I did talk about it. um, I think on that video and the article I mentioned, and then I always like, and I said this in the video and article, like TSA rules can change always before your flight, go look at the TSA regulations. They're actually pretty clear on what to do. Simple things like, you know, the firearm obviously has to be unloaded, uh, you know, should not have a magazine inserted. The magazine should not have any ammunition inside of it, even if it's not inserted. 
the ammunition must be in either factory, um, you know, a factory container like factory ammo box or, you know, relevant to me because I reload, for example, from my rifle. So it's not factory is it must be in like a hard sided container where those rounds are not moving around. What have you, you don't want to throw ammunition, mm-hmm. for example, in like a Ziploc bag, for example, that would be against regulations. So follow those basic protocols, but to answer your question, yes, you can have, I am checking this item, this piece of luggage, this case, and I declare it as a firearm. When I say a firearm, that doesn't mean that it can't actually have multiple. So again, for me, that's been potentially rifle and pistol or a perfect scenario outside of like our death hike and eight pistols in the case, which sounds ridiculous and was a realistic scenario is you and a buddy are traveling for a hunt then you want to share a rifle case. So now you have one piece of luggage, two rifles in it, or maybe two rifles and two pistols. Totally cool. Um, Definitely doable. Not a problem. Again, just follow the basic protocol of TSA that you would for any firearm. The bear spray um, actually is not allowed. So because it's an aerosolized canister. Exactly. So for like pressurized reasons, the same as like your fuel for your stove, like a jet boil. Um, you just flat out cannot fly with a period, whether it's in carry on or checked baggage. So it may sound funny to some people, but it's much easier to travel with a pistol than it is bear spray. You mm-hmm. will be in trouble with bear spray no matter what you do. So that is a great scenario of something that you would need to go purchase when you get on the ground. Um, or again, if you had somebody there, it's like, Hey, can you pick up bear spray for me? It's super easy. Like on the scenario of Alaska, for example, um, just to get it when you're on the ground, it's, you know, common, like you can buy bear spray at Costco up there and obviously any sporting yeah. goods store. Um, so the, yeah, not a big deal at all, but definitely good question on, um, on flying with firearm. And I'll give the brief, um, talk briefly about flying with firearm. Again, I went into more detail, I think in that video and article, but just so people know you're going to go directly, you show up at the airline with your firearm in the proper case and what have you just go directly to the airline's baggage counter like you would with anything else you're checking and you're just going to tell that airline attendant i literally just usually use the same words uh, i need to check a firearm in this piece of luggage like no alarms are going to go off tsa won't tackle you no one's going to freak out um airlines have a little bit depending on the airline different protocol but What's common is that airline, um, you know, person that, again, this isn't TSA, this is like call it Delta or Alaska or American, what have you. They're often going to have their own rules. And then what's common is they may have you sign something that says like this item contains a firearm, the firearm is unloaded. I have, you know, done this, that, and the other thing according to TSA regulations, et cetera. You will often have to sign that and put it inside your firearms case. Um, So that's like one pro tip is I don't even go into the airport with that item locked anymore because I know that I'm going to have to open it. Um, So it may sound funny, but I go into the airport with my firearm in the case, but the case isn't even locked yet because I know I'm going to have to open it for potentially for a variety of reasons. So sign this thing, put it in there, and then here's where you'll get kind of two different scenarios. And this isn't according to the airline, but this is um, according to the way that the airport is set up for TSA security. 
So you've declared it to baggage counter, you've paid for your baggage fees, you sign this thing probably and you've put it in there. Now one of two things are gonna happen. One being the airline is going to say, okay, please lock this. Um, and again, a small tip is have a lock for every lockable location on the case. So if it's a long gun case, like a rifle case, and there's four different latches or places where you can put a lock, do not show up with two locks. They want you to have a lock at every location that that case can be locked or latched. Um, so make sure you do that in advance. Also, it's actually, a lot of people think you need to use TSA locks. It's actually the other way around. You want to use non-TSA locks for a firearm. Anyway, so it's locked. At some airports, the airline's going to take that just like they would anything else they check, and they're going to throw it on that little belt thing behind the counter, and it's going to disappear. And in those scenarios, the airline's usually going to tell you, hey, wait here for like an extra 15, 20 minutes. Because if TSA wants to open and inspect this item, um, they may call you. And so you sit around and wait for them like 15, 20 minutes. And if they don't hear anything, then basically you're good to go um, and you're done. At other airports, you've gone to the baggage counter. You told me you have a firearm. You signed the thing. You put it in there. You've paid. They may tell you, hey, we're not going to take this and put it on the baggage thing. But here, and they're going to point there is a special TSA um, like bag check thing specifically for oversized usually and sensitive items such as firearms. And you're going to take your weapons case over to a special part of TSA. There's going to be a TSA person there. They're going to open it, inspect it, do their thing, swab it for explosives, um, do their inspection. And then they're going to tell you, yep, you're good to go. Now lock it. Again, you're with the TSA now. Now lock it. And then they're going to send it off on their little special belt and it's going to go on your plane. So that's something to be aware of is those two different ways that that can be handled. And again, that's not to do with the airline. It's everything to do with how the airport that you're flying through is set up, if that makes sense. Yeah. So don't be late. <laughs> so don't be late. So yeah, early. if you're... <laughs> If you're flying with firearm, I don't think you need to get there like an extra three hours early, but I would say a half an hour early, um, early compared to whatever you normally do, like an extra 30 minutes, call it to check a firearm. And then again, I think one of the biggest things is make sure you have locks for every location on the case. Um, oh, another random one that I just thought of with flying. So Remember what I said before about a weapons case and then like a duffel, for example? Yeah. If there's a scenario where you are flying not with, call it a rifle or a bow, but like, let's say you were only bringing a pistol, for example. Uh, maybe it's not even a hunting trip, right? But you're flying with just a pistol, not this giant big weapons case. You can have a pistol within a regular checked luggage, right? Like within a suitcase, within a duffel bag, whatever, it does still need to be inside of a locked hard-sided container, but the luggage item itself doesn't have to be a locked hard-sided container, if that makes sense, right? So, Interesting. Um, like, so for the death hike, for example, 
I think this is what I did, if I recall correctly. I had my duffel bag or whatever piece of standard luggage with a bunch of, you know, clothes and whatever, just like I'm flying to Cancun. I don't care. Inside of that, the only hunting related or firearm I was bringing was a pistol for bear defense. I had my own little, I used like one of those little car safes you can like lock in your car type thing mm-hmm. inside of a regular piece of luggage, declared that entire piece of luggage is containing a firearm. And even though the entire piece of luggage wasn't hard sided and locked, the firearm itself was hard sided and locked inside of that. So again, that's just something to keep in mind. Awesome. Did they make you, so it, then it's just, so long as that's locked, you don't have to have a second lock for like the duffel bag zippers. Correct. So long as it's. Yeah. I, don't, I think it would be a good idea to do that. I think if I recall what I did was the duffel bag, I had a TSA lock so they TSA could open it, but the case itself was like a keyed lock so they couldn't open the actual firearm case. Um, and then again, I don't, feel free to like Google and go crazy. It it may sound like dramatic to think, Oh, you're going to leave a pistol inside of a duffel bag. And like, what if somebody just steals it again, because you've declared at the baggage counter that this item contains a firearm. It's my understanding. And I've seen it. They print different tags. They put different things on it there. That whole item then is treated differently because it contains a firearm. I think there's actually very, very little risk that, that item is going to be treated like regular baggage and someone's just going to like sneak in there and pull a pistol out of it. Yeah. The, the little pistol case I used had one of those steel cables. So you could like wrap it around again. It was meant for a car. I think like you could wrap it around your seat and then the, the case itself is like kind of steel cables to your seat and your vehicle. So if you're super worried, maybe you take that steel cable and you like wrap it around whether it's the luggage or some other bigger awkward item inside the luggage, but basically something that would make it more not difficult to take out, but more awkward to like take out and conceal if you were super mm-hmm. concerned about that thing. I feel like we went off on a crazy tangent, but anyway, there's some information on flying with firearms. Yeah, no, that's great. All right. Let's chat a little bit about after the hunt. So um, one thing we didn't quite mention up front. We've talked about flying versus driving. One of the things we didn't mention in this conversation, but I have mentioned in previous episodes or to people is um, clearly you need to fly or drive to get to your destination. You don't necessarily have to decide in advance how you're getting back. So like this guy I mentioned, I think before who was going from Florida to Idaho, one of the scenarios I gave to him was maybe you fly out to Idaho with a one-way ticket for your hunt but you don't decide in advance how you're getting back. And based on the outcome of your hunt, then you decide, how do I want to get back to Florida, right? And as I told this guy, I'm not saying don't think about it and don't have a plan, but I think instead of having, you know, I flew out here, I have to fly back or I have to have a round trip ticket. Just keep your options open and think through like scenarios. Um, So maybe... You just flat out know, okay, if I go and go on this great hunt, but I don't have meat to deal with because I didn't fill my tag, like I'm just going to fly home. End of story. Hope you had a great time. Maybe you do fill a tag um, and you're now going to have meat to deal with. And then you can decide like, okay, do I want to fly home? Do I want to drive home? Am I leaving my meat at the destination and having it processed? And then I'm going to have them ship it back. 
am I not leaving it, you know, at my hunt location and I'm getting it home right away and I'm processing it myself at home or taking it to a processor at home or whatever. So there's all these different scenarios. Um, and again, I think there's a lot of different variables to consider here, including like for you, Eli, this goes back to having so called support on the ground, whether it's friends, family, whatever that can give you more options more easily. So, you know, if you like went back to Montana, Eli, and you kill an elk because you have family and friends there, it's just a heck of a lot easier, right? Like you can, yeah, you can like drive with your dad and drop off the elk at the processor and then tell your dad, it's like, yeah, let's get this thing processed and we'll figure out like, you know, after the fact, you know, he's going to be able to get it from the processor and he can pay the processor and you can pay him back. Like everything's just easier because you have him on the ground to help mm -hmm. after the hunt. Um, if you want to fly with meat, um, the easiest thing is if this was an Alaskan hunt, right? And I say that yeah. because they're just so stinking used to it. So if you go up to Alaska and you want to fly home with meat, it's just easy. Like people expect it. It's super common, not only for hunting, but also because of all the people who fly up there for fishing, like every Alaskan airport, every Alaskan airlines employee, every, you know, location of stores near an airport are just used to people coming in and like flying with meat. No one's going to look at you crazy. Like you would, if you showed up to, you know, the Charlotte airport and was like, yeah, I'm flying with 200 pounds of meat. They're going to think you're nuts. So Alaska, it's easy. Um, and just again, like if you're going to Alaska, you're, even if it's a non-guided hunt, you're, you're working with someone most likely, um, that's like doing a drop camp or whatever, and just asks them questions. Essentially what you're looking for is uh, quote unquote fish boxes in Alaska. Again, they're, they're called that because mainly what fishermen use, but they're typically like a heavy duty cardboard. They usually have like this waxy type of um, finish or lining. And then they often have like an inner, like inside the box, like a foam, pretty thin foam that kind of insulates. So um, you can load up a bunch of boxes of meat. You The fish boxes come in different size. A lot of them hit that 50 pound number. There are bigger ones. And you're just going to essentially pay um, to check those things as a checked item. And you're going to fly all the way from Alaska back home. And hopefully your meat shows up when you get there. They do, um, when you declare that as meat, for example, they'll put extra stickers on there that says like, you know, perishable, um, keep frozen, etc. So like, let's say you're flying home from Alaska you have a flight delay, a super tight connection in Seattle. You make your connection in Seattle, but your meat doesn't. When they pull those things off of the plane in Seattle that now aren't with you and they're not going to make it home till the next day or two days later, whatever, those items are declared by the airline that they need to be frozen. And when they pull them off the plane in Seattle, they're going to keep them in cold storage in Seattle, for example. Um, and then when they fly back home to you, you know, they'll have been kept cold, right? Most yeah. of the major hubs have the capability. Not every tiny airport is going to have like a freezer in that capability. But again, those tiny airports 
aren't generally where you're making a connection. So that's not generally where they're going to get quote unquote stuck or delayed or what have you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, long story short, it's totally possible to, again, let's say you're in the lower 48, not Alaska, but it's totally possible to check meat as an item checked bag. You're just paying for it. Right. Yeah. Um, you can go one of two ways. One is up to the 50 pounds and then you're not charged for an oversized or overweight item. The other option is you go over 50 pounds and now you're paying for an oversized item. On that note, one thing to look at with your airline is most airlines, once you exceed like say two checked items, for example, that third item and I'm using the rough number, this varies by airline, but let's say the third item, the airline's going to say, we're charging you extra. I don't care what this thing weighs or how big it is. We're charging you extra because you're checking so many things. So there is potential, for example, that you have your two checked items. We talked about before your weapons case and your duffel. These extra items now in terms of your meat, maybe they don't have to stay under 50 pounds because you're getting charged extra anyway, right? If that makes mm-hmm. sense. So it's like you're yeah. paying 75 or a hundred bucks for this item, get the most bang for your buck. And maybe it doesn't have to be under 50 pounds. So those are the little details I would say to look at. Um, a little known fact too, is you can also carry that on potentially you can carry meat on. It does need to be frozen. So, um, I haven't personally done this, but I know guys who have, um, like flown home, obviously not with a whole elk by any means, but like, let's say you have a soft sided cooler, um, you know, a Yeti or a Yeti knockoff, like soft sided cooler. If you go with fully frozen hard meat, you could load that sucker up and then just have it as a carry on. So again, it's no way you're going to get a whole elk or whole deer home but it is a way that you could get something home. It does have Mm -hmm. to be frozen um, solid to do that. Um, Yeah, and then shipping after the fact. So like, let's say you fly home, Eli, but you left your meat in Montana with family or whatever. Um, This is where I can't give you hard numbers. This is what I would just say of, you know, investigate ahead of time primarily with the the processor or maybe you're not having a processor. like maybe your dad's doing everything at that point Mm -hmm. most people are just going to have to look at you know it's shipping that right like using fedex or using ups or whatever if you're working with a processor they may have some additional options or they may also use like UPS or FedEx, but as a business, they may have better rates and things like that. The one thing gotcha. we have mentioned that I've done even within the lower 48 and guys have heard me talk about this on the podcast and ask questions is on some airlines, I typically use Alaska, but other airlines do this, including like American and I think United and some others. You can book pure cargo to go on a flight, say from um, Montana to North Carolina, or what I've done is from Idaho to Missouri. You're essentially booking a flight just like you would for a person. 
but you're only booking cargo. The big, the big hang up here is to do this and to use this service again, depend, doesn't matter what the airline is, but to, to do this process, you have to be what's called a known shipper. So think of like the reason this exists, for example, would be a seafood company on the East coast who wants to send fresh seafood to a restaurant on, you know, in Montana, right? Ooh, fresh seafood Uh from Maryland to Montana. The business in Maryland is going to be registered with the TSA as a known shipper and be able to ship things like air cargo. I just caught this this morning. I'm throwing it on a plane. It's going to be in Montana tonight, for example. So really it's a, it's a, it's a, it's meant primarily to be a business or a commercial service and you have to register as a known shipper. I did this and this isn't like illegal by any means. It's just that because XO is a business is a registered business. I registered our company XO mountain gear as a known shipper. And now I can log into Alaska airlines air cargo and say, I have these packages of these dimensions and these weights um, give me some pricing and they'll show you pricing. And then you just book a flight just like you would, um, a person, except you're not choosing a seat, but you're literally looking at the standard airfare schedule and you're saying, okay, I'm booking air cargo for this flight. Um, and I'm just going to come drop these items off at the airport and they're going to be picked up on the other end when this flight's over. So I've done this after hunting elk in Idaho to send elk meat back to Missouri, for example. Um, It's actually really reasonably priced. Again, the big hangup is you have to jump through the hoops ahead of time to become a registered known shipper to do this. And then the other logistic thing is you have to have someone drop the items off uh, at the original location and then pick them up at the destination. So you can't do this on your own, right? Cause you're not flying with yeah. it at that point. So you'd need some sort and of you help. can't, you can't beat it across wherever you're to to from. If you're dropping it off, Correct. you can't Correct. across the country. There is a scenario that you say that though. Like, I guess you could book yourself on the same flight as your quote unquote air cargo. And it would be cheaper to use air cargo than a bunch of checked bags. For example, um, it would be cheaper. But again, they're two separate processes, like two separate. Yeah, you're just not, it's not you and your items anymore. It's like they may end up on the same plane, but how you booked your butt to get in a seat on that flight and how you booked your meat to get on that flight via air cargo are totally uh, not connected at that point, if that makes sense. Very different. Yeah. So again, I, I throw that out there with some hesitation because it's not something anyone and everyone can do, but. Mm-hmm. For guys who are um, own a small business or have some sort of like, you know, way to register a business, it doesn't like EXO has nothing to do with shipping on a regular basis. And that wasn't a problem. They don't do this massive. It's not a massive registration. It doesn't cost anything to register. I think the main, main hiccup is you just, it needs to be like a business type thing. Yeah. Is so. this where you announce EXO's uh, entrepreneurship? Yeah. So that, so that's a great thing is here's what I've had in my head. And this is what I would, this is almost what I would say that hunters should do is 
whether this is you, Eli, or like somebody listening, if if meat processors aren't already aware of this and registered to do this, they should be, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if you were to go on a hunt in Idaho and before your hunt, you start like calling some meat processors and asking them about, you know, like, hey, I'm, I'm coming out to your state and I, I would like to use you, you know, if I have a successful hunt and, and want to process this elk, but I live in North Carolina. So like if I drop off an elk with you and you process it and I pay for the processing, like, you know, you're asking that guy, like, what options do I have for you to help me get this processed elk back to North Carolina? And he may say, oh yeah, we've done that. Like we do that. We use UPS or we use FedEx and like, here's what it typically costs per pound. Like, here's what you can expect, whatever. If that guy, and maybe some processors do this, I'm sure some do, but I, I would venture to say most probably don't because most processors are, are, you know, smaller mom and pop yeah, and things, local. which is fine yeah. and local. Yeah, for sure. Like totally understand it. But say for like a processor in Boise or, um, you know, pick Montana, like pick Billings, like more near the town in the airport. Right. Mm-hmm. I would, man, if they got set up in the system, which I think would be very, very easy for them to do they would be able to offer this for the customer and save the customer money. But also, you know, they can charge like a handling fee or something else because they're going to have to take it and they are going to have to take it to the airport. So, you know, they're, they're doing some work. I'm not saying they should do everything for free, but I would bet that they would be able to make a, you know, some sort of like service or handling fee for coordinating this and ship it to you cheaper than they could probably ship it to you just for the pure cost of like FedEx or UPS. So again, I'm yeah. I hope I don't make a ton of meat processors mad, but I would encourage hunters <laughs> <laughs> to at least mention this as an option if it's something you're looking at and if you're using a processor out of state, but that processor also happens to be um you know conveniently located near an airport, it would be something to like let them know about or encourage them to look at because I think it could at the end of the day, it could earn them some more business if, like, for example, Eli, you called and called this processor and their answer was, oh, yeah, like we're set up with Alaska Air Cargo. We can get this thing on a plane and you're going to have it in North Carolina six hours later. No big deal, right? It's not yeah, and it's two or three days. Or, it, yeah, or, it's yeah, cheaper or and it's- faster, right? That's the great thing about it is, you know, I've, again, as I mentioned, I've done this like with my elk from Idaho to Missouri it's on a plane that morning and I'm picking it up that afternoon. Like it's, it's an awesome thing, but it's just more difficult to do as an individual. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, that's great. Um, one question I had, we'll rewind a little bit to, um, say we're doing the, uh, I go and get a bunch of fish, fish boxes and I'm, um, packing them to 49.8 pounds. Um, do I need to add, uh, some kind of ice inside the cooler, um, when shipping it? Or, um, do you think that being it being up in the air, um, in the cargo hold that it's cold enough, um, to stay under there and that, um, I don't have to worry about like, you know, oh, I can only put in 
right. 40 packages, 40 pounds worth of meat because I need to throw in this 10 pounds of ice to make sure it stays cold throughout the flight. Yeah. Great question. If the meat was frozen, I would have zero concerns about not adding anything to it. Right. So that's what I've mostly done. Um, is even, and again, this is super common in like Alaska scenarios of, um, let's say you go on this Alaskan hunt, you come out of the field and you have like an overnight stay at a hotel before you fly home the next day. A ton of hotels in Alaska have walk-in freezers, like not special hotels either, like a super eight or a best Western, right? Because again, this is just so wow. normal yeah. up there. It's Yeah. Yeah. So ask first, right? But I will say that a ton of hotels, most all of them that I've called within vicinity of an airport are going to have a walk-in freezer for you to use. So you come out of the field, your meat's not frozen yet, not processed, like you just quartered it, deboned it, what have you, package it, spend one night, you know, overnight in the freezer. Maybe it's not frozen rock hard solid, but it's good and cold. I have zero concerns like hopping on a plane the next day. It's packed in fish boxes. It is somewhat insulated, but I'm not adding ice or anything to it. And then the belly of the plane is pretty cold and then getting home and the meat's still plenty cold. I've done that with frozen meat, like rock hard frozen meat. And I've done that with very cold, but not frozen solid meat and zero issues. The other thing you do is in that fish box I mentioned, there's usually like that that foam liner, you know, a little bit of like insulation value. Typically you're going to put that in like a bag as well. So if there is any sort of like blood seepage or something like that, it's contained. That's definitely something that could get a package pulled from the airline or from TSA was if they see, see blood leaking out of a box, like that's, you know, yeah, yeah. that's probably not going to go well. So there's typically that type of lining as well, but yeah, the scenario where uh, you haven't had time to get it in the freezer. Um, maybe it's cold cause it like hung overnight in the field, but it's not really cold and it's not frozen. That definitely, um, gets trickier. I mean, I would almost look at a situation like that where hopefully whether you're in Alaska or whether you're, you know, in Montana or Idaho or whatever, hopefully you're not going straight from the field to a flight and you do have some sort of like overnight or something like that. Again, if you're a lower 48, it's going to be less common that you call a random motel and they have a walk-in freezer. So that's something I'd recommend of, again, calling around in advance. Like I'm going to be um, in this part of Colorado or Idaho or Wyoming or what have you. Some meat processors, for example, will allow you to do just cold storage. Like you don't have to use them for processing, but you can charge like per day cold storage. Because another scenario that that comes into play is like, let's say you and a buddy go out of state on a hunt. Um, You both have a tag and you have like 10 days to hunt and either you or your buddy kill something on day two or three. You could potentially come out of the field, go to this location, and just want to use cold storage to keep this game cold while you then go back out and continue to hunt for five, six, seven days. So it is a a service that you can find and be offered. Um, In this scenario, you're just using cold storage to cool, potentially freeze that meat and then get it home, um, you know, on a flight. So I, 
in general, I would say for flying specifically, I would try to invo- I'd try to avoid ice, dry ice, et cetera. It's just going to take up room. It's going to be more weight. Some of that, like in terms of dry ice, I honestly haven't looked at what TSA's regulations would be on flying. Potentially that's a no-go. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Look for yourself. But yeah, I would just say even if it's not totally frozen, get it good and cold in advance. And again, because you're flying and you're not talking about days of transit, you're talking about hours of transit, you should be totally fine. Cool. Um, I guess we could kind of use that as a segue of, let's say, let's say I decide to drive home, mm-hmm. um, successful on a hunt. Uh, how, how would you recommend, um, transporting, transporting some meat for, um, you know, multiple days, uh, in a cooler, you, you're able to, you know, hang it in a tree for, you know, X amount of days. So it's, it's cooled, but not frozen. Um, and, uh, yeah, getting that, um, getting that meat across, across the country without it spoiling. Yeah. Good question. Um, definitely different schools of thought exist here for sure. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is coolers and I'll talk about that in a second, but before we dive into coolers, one option that I have done, um, again, this is a driving scenario, right? Depending on your capabilities, depending on what you have is one option we have done, like me and my buddy, Jared have, thrown a chest freezer in the back of a truck and then had the truck set up with an inverter that was powerful enough to run that freezer. And so we loaded that freezer with a bunch of elk that wasn't yet processed um, and had the freezer running as we were driving and it was frozen solid. The rookie mistake we made the first time we did this was We didn't add any barriers between like the quarters and the meat. We just kind of put everything in there. And um, because of moisture that then froze, we got home with a freezer with like 200 plus pounds of like a rock hard chunk of meat frozen together. So um, we learned the hard way to, if you take this approach, um, use some sort of barrier like between quarters or chunks of meat or what have you. So if you have like quarters and game bags, like use cardboard, use something to separate those so that when they freeze, they don't freeze together and you can pull a frozen quarter out instead of having essentially a one giant block of frozen elk. Um, so yeah, learn that lesson the hard way. So a freezer can be helpful. Um, you can do this honestly, even if you don't power the freezer, you can use a big freezer as a giant cooler as well and add your own, you know, ice, dry ice, et cetera. Um, so that is something to keep in mind as you look at the size of a deep freezer that has clearly some some level of built-in insulation, you're adding to that cooling effect with a medium of ice or dry ice. Um, it can be cheaper to buy a big freezer than a big cooler, um, equivalent size cooler, I'll put it that way, especially if you're looking at yeah. something name branded. So that is something I think people overlook as well as just using a chest freezer as a cooler essentially in this scenario and then one thing you can do as well and this is again use the cooler strategy not i'm not whether you're using a a traditional cooler or a freezer as a cooler but 
you know, you can pre-chill that thing. That's going to go a long way in its effectiveness. And you can, uh, you know, do that. Like in the past, when we've gone out with a freezer that was powered, we'll have some containers in there, like milk jugs, et cetera, that are giant ice blocks to pre-cool things. And um, you can use those then on the way home, potentially to cool as well. But the, where I would think there's two big big differences in opinion and approach as it relates to meat in a cooler is there's a school of thought that says keep all moisture away from the meat moisture you know bacteria thrives on moisture keep all the moisture away from the meat and there's a complete opposite school of thought that some guys do like a cold wet aging and they let the meat be in the moisture like in the ice for you know several days and soak and some guys do this as a strategy even when they're not traveling but like they'll do you know wet aging on meat in a cooler intentionally um to help break down the meat and flush out blood and etc so again there definitely is two different schools of thought and i've talked with people on the podcast on either side of that debate so it just really depends on what your philosophy is and your approach there. But I tend to um, would recommend that you at least let the water drain off, right? And then you're replenishing ice as needed. So I'm typically not the guy who's going to want to let my meat stay in a colored floating environment with a bunch of moisture and a sealed cooler. I'm not saying I wouldn't go so far to keep my meat away from all contact with ice. But for me personally, if I was using coolers, I would probably prop them up in a certain way, let the water drain out and replenish ice as needed. If using traditional ice, if you're using dry ice, you know, you have to be obviously um, cautious with contact there. So you would be more using a strategy of creating some sort of structure where you had either ice or dry ice below racks or some sort of like medium or barrier and your meat above. Um, you know, I've seen guys build different systems to do that. Some guys use a simple barrier, like, a you know, a trash bag where they're keeping the meat above the ice and moisture. Um, but essentially, I mean, at the end of the day, we can debate moisture and contact. It's just obviously the name of the game is keeping it cool. That's what's clearly most important. And it can definitely be good in a cooler over multiple days, especially if you're, you know, keeping the the ice replenished, right? And that, again, I've done this at home a bunch that has nothing to do with travel. It'd be the same scenario as traveling of, I shoot a deer, I don't have time to process it immediately. I want to get in the freezer, you know, this weekend, which is three or four days away. So I'm going to keep it cool in a cooler until I can actually trim it, wrap it, package it and get it in the freezer. So I, I think it's easy to overthink that. Um, at the end of the day, again, just focus on keeping it cool. And then the questions become um, how much cooler space is needed, what type of coolers, et cetera. I definitely, for this type of scenario, don't feel like you need any Gucci Yeti $500 coolers. Like, and maybe you don't even get coolers in advance. Maybe this is one of those decisions where, Hey, I'm driving from here to there in X state. I'm not 
maybe I don't own a ton of coolers or I don't want to take up a bunch of dead space for a bunch of coolers. Um, I'm just going to identify here's where I can source some coolers if I'm successful for that trip home, whether that's, you know, Costco, Walmart, sporting goods store, whatever. Um, if you are going out with coolers, again, potentially try to pre-chill them if you can. The other thing is because just so they're not dead space. If you're not pre-chilling them, you're just traveling on the road. Obviously just use them as gear storage, right? Throw a bunch of stuff yeah. in the cooler um, and use that as a, a packaging strategy, if you will. I will say the we did a podcast with my buddy Josh, and I'm trying to look up what the episode number is, but I will find it and leave a link in the show description. And he had a very distinct strategy for using coolers with meat. And again, I forget all of the details there, but I'll leave a link in the show description. And then one of the guys who I know is an advocate of that wet aging technique, who again, we talked about on the podcast and I'll leave a link in the show description for that, uh, is Joseph Von Benedict. And we got into that with him on one of the episodes he was on. So I'll, I'll point you guys to more resources for those strategies. Yeah. Thank you. See anything else, man? I feel like I've talked so stinking much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have you had a lot of information that I, I wanted, and uh, am very grateful um, that you gave me. Um, I can't really think of anything. Um, I guess one thing that we could talk about is um, I think flying with. Uh, um, uh, I, I just know this from a little bit of my research, but, um, that flying with, uh, like if you bring back, um, a Euro mount or, um, your caping or whatever up in Alaska, that, um, flying with that is a little bit different because of, um, that's a, it's an, obviously an awkward shape. And I know that there's the chance of having it, um, be damaged or um hurt in that flight process um and uh so if you want to get into like recommendations on that of um yeah being able to being being able to bring back your trophy and uh not being devastated if it (laughs) if you if they put it on the rack and it's in a multiple pieces yeah yeah, good good one. The first thing to mention um the point people to is regardless of flying or, you know, take Alaska out of the picture, take flying out of the picture. Uh let's just talk about going across state lines, which could include Alaska, could include flying, but it could include, you know, driving from one state to another, bordering states, right? Or across the country for that matter. Mm-hmm. Is more and more states are um implementing rules about bringing animals from another state into that state. And when I say animals, I don't just mean live, of course, but things like um, mostly brain spinal fluid, right? From skulls. So because of CWD. So one big thing to look at is the state that you're hunting in. What are their rules for taking something out? the states you're driving through and then your home destination state, what are their rules? So again, I don't want to ignore that 
and someone get in trouble, I also don't want to try and prescribe like, here's what you should do because it varies by state, but it is something for folks to look at. Um, okay. So aside from that, flying with um, those items, the, you know, this is obviously easier with a smaller animal, right? Like you could take a deer, for example, um, especially if you skull cap it and it's not a full gyro and you can throw a skull capped rack of antlers in pretty much any baggage you want. Um, if you want to do a full skull or like a gyro mount, it would be great to treat that more like you did your meat again, because it has like some living tissue to it. Right. So it's going to have, you know, some tissue, potentially some brain matter, et cetera. So the, when I say treat it more like meat, what I mean is for transport, you would ideally want that frozen. You would want that wrapped. Um, so there's no leakage and then potentially, you know, boxed in like a fish box from Alaska, something like that. So a scenario that's very, you know, what I've done with like a full deer skull, not a, a skull capped thing, but like a full for a Euro or for a shoulder mount coming home from like say Kodiak with a black tail was get it in one of my fish boxes with some of my meat. Now, clearly it's taking up space, so I can't fit as much meat. Um, but it, you know, I think the last time I came home from Kodiak, I had, I think between fish and blacktail meat and a couple of blacktail racks, I think I had like four fish boxes, you know, and just used all of those for everything I mentioned above the blacktail meat, some fish and, um, the skull and racks. So you can go with that strategy as well. I've flown with, um, <laughs> I've flown with a full attached elk skull and antlers before, um, a 300 plus inch bull. So walking through the airport with that wow. was quite entertaining. Um, <laughs> this is where I'll say like, take Alaska out of the picture. This was all lower 48 for me. For example, each airline can handle this a little bit differently and, and from what I've seen, most airlines do have a specific policy for antlers, for example. The basic, usually like the basic outline here is that every tip of the antler must be fully protected. Um, and then obviously you as the hunter are probably trying to protect the rest of the rack and the skull itself from damage. Um, but usually they're more focused on making sure that the tips of the antlers aren't some sort of like going to cause any puncture to either person or things type deal. So me flying home with a giant elk skull and rack all attached as a one single piece unit. What I did was took a bunch of cardboard, folded it, went over all of the tips, um, taped that really strongly. So the tips were all rounded off and protected with pretty, uh, you know, with cardboard and that was taped on. I went ahead and used a bunch of bubble wrap over the top of that, that went over both the tips, but really the whole portion of the rack. Um, so the main, you know, the main beams, like all of the rack was essentially bubble wrapped as well. Then mm -hmm. the skull I did, you know, again, there's potential of like brain matter tissue. So, 
that was something I got as clean as I absolutely could. It was by no means like presentable, clean Euro mounted, but I was confident that it wasn't in a place where it was going to be leaky, rotty, stinky, (laughs) if that helps. Yeah. I put, you know, I dropped the skull portion into like a heavy duty contractor bag, folded all that up nice and neat around it, a bunch of tape around that again, and then repeated that. So then like another contractor bag. So it was like dual layered, um, heavily taped. I think I may have between the contractor bags have done some bubble wrap there as well, but I basically had this giant elk rack of cardboard tape and bubble wrap um, that was pretty well protected and then walked into the airport (laughs) and asked them to check it. It was an oversized item, um, but it worked and I didn't have any issues. They printed off, you know, a little baggage label and like put it on the skull and it scanned and went off and thankfully uh, showed up at oversized baggage when I got to my destination. So there are what I mentioned about, um, you know, protecting the points and the airline specific regulations, most of the airlines as well will list maximum dimensions. So for an elk, obviously compared to like a deer, it is going to fall in oversized, but I think even in that there are, there's a, there's a limit to the oversized dimensions. Um, and the elk that I checked was exceeded that, but I was just hopeful that, uh, they were not going to actually put a tape to this thing and they didn't. So yeah, I would say deer, like you can get that sucker as clean as possible. Um, again, if you know, you haven't had a chance to like fully do a cleaned skull and there's potential brain matter and tissue, you're going to want to try and get it frozen and things like that. So treat it more like meat. But if it's something where you've been able to get it pretty clean, or you've skull capped it, then it's just a matter of size. And can I get this within some sort of checked baggage? Or do I need to take the step of it's its own item? And now what steps do I need to take to prepare it and protect it for the flight? The other, sorry, the final one would be, and I've done this with caribou, splitting the skull, right? So either splitting the skull or not splitting the skull, but um, taking one of the antlers off below the burr so that you can you know, take this big wide skull, whether that's um, elk or caribou, and split it in a way where you can kind of lay each side on top of each other and then secure that. That's something you could potentially get in like a longer box or again, just secure to one another, but it's uh, dimensionally obviously much different because you don't have the, the wide spread of the rack. You've basically collapsed yeah. it on top of each other. I've done that with um, elk and caribou as well. Usually, you know, depending like if you want a euro, of course, you don't want to split the skull. So you would be taking off, um, you'd be sawing an antler off like below the burr. If you, before you cut it, like pre-drill some holes that would then be reference points to reconnect it. And then once you've cut it, you have these pre-drilled Um, channels that you can then screw the whole thing back together. Um, There's different ways to do that. And I think if you hop on YouTube, you'll get some like that would probably make more sense visually than what I just described. But that would be the other option as well is if you have a larger skull and antlers to detach or split that in some way. Um, If you're 
you know, if you're doing a shoulder mount, like skull cap it and splitting it is no big deal. Obviously, if you're trying to do a Euro, you're not going to want to split the skull. So yeah, it just depends on like knowing what your end goal is, I think is going to help you decide what you can do. Um, yeah. What you can do to, to get that home and what matters. Yeah, that's, that's great information. I never, the pre-drilling for the, um, for anchor points for when you reattach it, it's a genius idea. Yeah. It's super helpful to then just like line it back up, throw some screws in it and you're good to go. Any other questions? No, there's none that really pop into my head. This was um, very informational, and uh, yeah, I think I have a better a better map of um, how I'll be able to make some cross country hunting trips happen, and uh, figuring out the logistics of it. So I I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to answer my questions and. Give me some really good information. Awesome. Well, it was good to chat. Hopefully uh, it helps. I'm excited to hear what trips you get to take in the future and both for you and then listeners who are still tuning in. If you have like follow-up questions or want more specifics, feel free to send an email to podcast at xmongear.com. We can try and address those specifics in the future. But yeah, man, good to chat. Appreciate you reaching out and uh, excited to see what adventures you get into. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. And uh, wish you the best of luck with K4 and this upcoming season and everything else well there you have it guys i know that there was a lot in there a lot of different topics and uh just information through that conversation if you guys have any questions as a follow-up to this feel free to shoot us an email to podcast at xmontgear.com or leave a message using whatever device you're on you can leave us an audio message that we can answer in a future q a episode There's a link in the show description for that that just says leave a message. Finally, if you haven't yet, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.